podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. Tonight we have uh, a special episode for you tonight. We have a, a guest that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get on the podcast uh, to talk about the new coaching hire. Um, the Probably the person that, that most people have wanted me to talk to the most out of those that, that have been telling me, um, you know, finally giving me suggestions of who to talk to. We have Smacker Miles on the, on the podcast tonight. Uh, she joined us for a very short conversation to kind of talk about how you know, the coaching hires affected them, um, kind of give us a little bit of preview of what we can expect from her dad coming in to coach the program and kind of just talking about her, her first impressions of KU and Lawrence in general. So uh, was was really glad to have her on the podcast, and we'll actually jump over to that first. But right after that, we'll then jump over to uh, Fetch and I went ahead and, and recapped the NIT season tip-off. Um, so there's there's a lot of good content there. Uh, but first, I'll, I will get you right on over to the interview with Smacker. And I'm joined now by the person who's probably the the most popular new follow for all of KU Twitter, <laughs> Smacker Miles. Smacker, <laughs> how, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Happy to talk to you. Yeah, it's 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 great to have you on. Honestly, I think you're probably one of the most popular people we've had on the podcast to date. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, well, I should say probably one of the the people that the, that most people want to actually talk to. So, um, you know, I, I think I think um, it was it was definitely interesting. Uh, I think when you kind of introduced yourself to uh, to Ku Twitter, um, everybody was really really excited. It was still kind of at the point where. We weren't 100% sure that, that your dad was going to be hired as the coach, but everybody had kind of heard it at that point and was assuming it was going to happen. So, um, But I, I want to ask you, what was your first impression of the KU fan base, whether that was the people in person or your interaction with people on Twitter or, or any of that? I had always heard that Kansas was a basketball school, so I was really, really pleasantly surprised to see how excited Kansas fans were about their football. And just how passionate they are about the potential of the program because that support is such a necessary part for a team to have success. Yeah. I mean, I know that Kansas gets the rap as a, as a basketball only school, but you know, we had, we had a, a very successful few seasons with Mark Mangino and uh, back, back in 2008 uh, when they won the orange bowl. And it was, I mean, it was huge. Everybody was all over having the football success. And, and I mean, Part of, part of the reason they, they get that rap is because prior to my Mangino, the team wasn't very good for about 12, 15 years in there. Um, and then after Mangino, it's been really bad. So obviously, you know, when that's your only bright spot for a good 30-year period, it's hard to to really think of people as football schools. But th- there's a lot of KU fans that grew up as, you know, fan of, of Gail Sayers and a bunch of other guys that have come out of the program. So there's definitely a rich history in Kansas football. Um you know, I, I honestly was a little surprised um, when when Les Miles decided to go ahead and come. You know, I had always thought of it as more of a, um, you know, I, would he really, really want to come here? And, um, you know, the, the relationship he has with, with Jeff Long, I think, um, was a little bit underestimated, I think, by, by a lot of Kansas fans. Um, but in, in, in your conversations with your dad, like, what was it about the Kansas program at this point that really sold him on this 
on this position? I think just belief that they can be good. And he liked the place he had visited a couple times. He was the only one in the family that knew how wonderful Lawrence was before we got there. So he was just so excited to meet Jeff, to know Jeff Long and for their ideas and their goals of the program to align because I know that that was something that he valued very much was finding an athletic director that was going to support him and kind of give him everything he needs to have success in the football program and not stand in the way in any way. And I think that his faith in Jeff Long was definitely a different difference maker when he was deciding. Sounds good. So how, how long before the announcement did you guys actually know that he was going to go ahead and, 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 and was seriously considering the, the position? I knew he was seriously considering it for a while. And mm-hmm. I would say, yes, we knew significantly in advance of most people knowing. But in the coaching world, when you're talking about contract negotiations and things like that, it's you, it doesn't feel done until it's done. So right. knowing that he's been offered or will be offered and knowing that he's the lead guy just doesn't mean that much because anything can go wrong with the most minute details of that contract. So right. for me, it doesn't feel real until you're on the plane. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, there was a lot of speculation when it became kind of known that he was the lead candidate, a lot of plane watching, a lot of all that fun stuff. How much of that did you follow? Were you kind of like laughing behind the scenes about how crazy everybody was, was, was going on Twitter? I went to New Orleans for the day one day and then I saw the plane reports and I texted my mom. and I was like, there are planes coming. Like you would tell me right to come back. She's <laughs> like, yes, of course. It's funny because I'm in media and I have a major in journalism and there's still that part of you that sees something that's false. It's like, but what if it is true? <laughs> right, right. So, so, uh, you know, there's the, I think the, the one question that I've heard people talk about jokingly, um, obviously your dad is known for picking up grass off the sideline and eating it. Has, has he ever tasted turf? Not that I know of, but he has mentioned having a patch of grass accessible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was joking with some people on Twitter that, that if we did hire him, we would probably just have to give him a Chia Pet to sit on the sideline with him. So he would always have something that he could grab. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's one solution that's that's possible. We'll have to find a nice Jayhawk-shaped Chia Pet for him. I like it. I like it. So I guess my other, my other big question for you, obviously you, you graduated from, from Texas, Kansas played Texas this last week. Did, did the timing of the announcement kind of give you any kind of mixed feelings about that game or, or, or anything like that? No, people, that's kind of been a question that I've answered throughout life, whether it was, in my recruitment, I took a trip to Auburn when my dad was at LSU. And then mm-hmm. a lot of times, whether it was, even if it was a sport that neither of me and my brothers were involved in, if it was our schools playing each other or uh, all one of our schools playing one of dad's schools or in the conference. And for me, it's just, it's never been any drama. I want my dad to have success for my family to be happy. And so the idea that I would cheer for Texas football over Kansas is just not ever going to happen. So it's crazy how, my blood, sweat, and tears are on that University of Texas campus at that natatorium where I swam, but family still just matters more. 
Well, that's always good to hear. You know, I, I know that uh, I, I always joke with my own kids who talk about going to play for a team that, you know, that I don't root for and how I would be rooting for them, but I couldn't be rooting for the team. My, uh, actually my, my kids are really big into baseball and I'm a, I, I'm a Kansas city Royals fan. And I, uh, my, my youngest son really likes the Yankees for whatever reason and said he wants to go play for him. And I always joke with him about that, but, um, but yeah, Uh-oh. I mean, I can imagine it would be difficult. Um, you know, if you were really, really involved, like I, it, it would be difficult if he was coaching directly, I think against the team that you had participated with um that there might be some mixed feelings i know obviously you know going and graduating from from texas i'm assuming you at least somewhat root for those teams um but yeah if you've got a family member participating playing against them i think that's kind of the one instance where everybody understands if you throw your prior allegiances aside and root for a family member so okay Mm -hmm. so so i guess i guess um you know there's a lot of people that i've been seeing that have been asking and i i don't know if you've actually answered this or not but um you know, I, I mean, how uh, how much does this change for for your dad? Like, change it for you? Are you are you coming with him at any point, or do you have stuff set up for you down in Baton Rouge? Or or I guess how how often are people going to be seeing and hearing from you as well? I am currently working for a job that I work remote. The company's out of New York City, and I'm pretty new to the job. And it's really nice that I could live anywhere because it does give me the potential to move to Kansas. Right now, I have one more high school football game in Baton Rouge. It's like the game of the week. It's on your view. So I'm doing sideline reporting for that. But after that, I'll be pretty much freed up and finding some freelance sideline reporting to go with my full-time job that I can work anywhere will pretty much be the key to me deciding where I live. So I know that the company called Your View does things in Kansas, so I will be talking to them pretty shortly just about any opportunities there or anywhere else. Sounds like a lot of fun. So, all right. Well, I guess, um, I guess we can go ahead and finish up. What is it that you think your, your dad brings to a program? Like what is it that's special about what he brings that the Kansas fans can look forward to in the next few years? I think he has a really special way of endearing his players and genuinely believing in them to the point that they want to do anything they can for him. And I think that's a characteristic of the best coaches in the country where their players would do anything in their power to get it done for their coach. And I think it's really exciting that you're going to see the best that the Kansas players have to offer. And you're going to see a team with some swag and some fight to them. Yeah, it's definitely something that we need. Um, having having gone through the, the last coaches that we did, uh, it'll definitely be nice to see a guy who's as enthusiastic and also has kind of the pedigree that he has, um, you know, to be able to bring in and kind of bring that legitimacy to the program. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. I do have just one final question for you. I actually happened to listen to the last couple episodes of, of the podcast that you do with your dad. Um, is this going to affect the podcast that you guys do? Like, are you guys going to still be able to do it? Will it have to change based off of him taking this job? Or are you guys planning on keeping that rolling as far as you know? We're definitely going to have to be revamping it because obviously it won't be a national podcast just right. because that's be all focused on Kansas now. But I know that some people in the Kansas Athletic Department are for continuing it. So I oh, think awesome. there's a good chance to be continued in some form. 
I was I was kind of hoping for that. I know that I mean a lot of coaches have their own kind of media appearances and things like that, but they tend to be a little bit more, um, I guess, official and uh, restricted in terms of how they're actually doing that. But it's always nice, I think, to kind of hear for, from what I've heard of the podcast. It's definitely a more candid look at you know, kind of his thoughts on coaching mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, anytime you can connect with a fan base through those sorts of um, opportunities, I think it does help out the fan base in general. So I, I know that it, that it's a big part of what's kind of kept him in a, in a national sense, um, you know, a, a name that people wanted to connect with and why I think his name has come up for pretty much every job since he stopped coaching for, for LSU. So, all right. Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't, I don't want to, drag this out with a whole bunch of uh, unnecessary questions. So I do want to thank you for coming on. Um, I know that we, thank you for having me. Yeah. I know we as Kansas fans are really, really looking forward to your entire family becoming members of the Jayhawk family. So thank you again. We're so excited to be a part of it. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Since now we've given you guys a little bit of insight in terms of what we can expect from Les miles and, and what we can look forward to for the next, for the next few years here. I'm going to go ahead and get you right on over to the conversation that I had with Fetch. And I'm joined now by Steve Fetch, editor over at Rock Chalk Talk. Steve, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So we're we're back again for our usual, you know, we're back in basketball season, so it's our, our weekly, at least, uh, segment now here. Um, talking about the, I guess, the developments in the basketball program. Um, the big story, obviously, is Kansas won the NIT season tip-off beating both Marquette and then Tennessee, the the, the match that we thought they were going to have, the one that I think we were kind of hoping for. Um, so my first question to you is, were you surprised by anything in particular in that in, in either of those two games? You know, I think the one thing that I may be a little surprised by is that they beat Tennessee despite not playing very well. Um, even beyond the, the fact that they were down, I think, 9-11, somewhere in there early in the second half. Um, they just couldn't really get things going offensively. You know, Udo Kazabuki had a lot of foul trouble. Um, Dieter Clausen didn't really get it going until late. Uh, Quentin Grimes was an absolute no-show. Um, and obviously, you know, Marcus Garrett being out with the concussion. So if, if you would have told me all of those things would have happened uh, and Kansas still won, I, I would have thought you were crazy. But uh, they certainly did. And, and this team, um, you know, I don't know what Bill Self has to complain about toughness-wise. I mean, that's usually his number one complaint about his team this time of year, but it, it doesn't seem like he has that compl- complaint to make uh, this year. Um, I guess the, the big complaint out of him would be just the, the offense looking a little lackadaisical. Um, and we can get into that more, uh, I'm sure. You know, I mean, are, are you surprised by anything? I mean, that's the only thing I can really think of. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that I'm really surprised by is the fact that Grimes hasn't gotten going since, you know, he had that, that good game against Michigan State to start. And then after that, he's basically been non-existent for the rest of the time. Um, you know, he, he made some good impacts in the Vermont game, but, you know, Louisiana, he basically disappeared. Marquette in Tennessee, you barely saw him. He got benched for Marcus Garrett um, in that in that second half of the Marquette game, which was driving me crazy. Um, and, and we'll talk about about that a little bit, I think, just because, you know, I was I, I was honestly the, – the other thing that was kind of surprising, and, and Bill Self actually talked about this himself – uh, is just how well rated this defense is because it look it looks like at times they just have absolutely no clue what they're doing out there. They, they they tend to get lost. They leave tons of open shooters. They're actually ranked number four right now in defensive in defensive efficiency in, in the nation. Um, 
you know, which is really, really surprising. Bill Self was shocked when, when someone gave him that stat. Like he, he actually said something to the effect of, you know, um, I, I knew our offense was that good, but are you sure about our defense? Cause there's no way it's been that good. And, but it, it I mean, it has. They're ranked number four. Uh, the adjusted efficiency of, of their defense is 89.3, which is phenomenal, especially for this, for this time of the year. You know, Kansas usually has the problem where their defense is what's lagging at the beginning of the year. Um, where they just, you know, it takes a while for everybody to buy into a self system or, or to get comfortable with it. And the, the defensive pressure really ramps up at the end of the year. And that's how, where you see them making the most improvement this year, at least by the numbers, you know, they're, they're a pretty good defensive team, which I find to be a little bit surprising. So any thoughts on that before we jump into well, the games? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing, um, and I guess we can, we'll, we'll, kill two birds with one stone here and, and jump into the Marquette game. Um, but just taking kind of a, a global view here, they're 321st nationally in terms of allowing threes. Um, and, you know, so those, those defensive numbers I think are going to uh, go down quite a bit if they keep doing that. I mean, you look at the Marquette game, um, they allowed 31 threes and, and Marquette only took 29 twos in that game and, and they shot 45% from three. So, the fact that Kansas allowed a point per possession that game only is uh, kind of a miracle, to be honest with you. I mean, um, Marquette turned it over maybe a little bit more than you would expect from them um, and didn't get a lot of offensive rebounds. But you just expect a, a team shooting that many threes to score uh, a lot more than they did. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of stuttering here because I'm not really sure if that's uh, a talent by KU. They obviously clamped things down in the second half and didn't, didn't allow them to have uh, as many open looks. And they've obviously done, for the most part, a really good job inside the arc. Uh, and have obviously done, for the most part, uh, a good job at defensive rebounding. Um, so unlike last year where there were a lot of four or five shot possessions, um, this year it's mostly one and done. Um, but I really don't know if they can keep up their their good performance um defensively you know they've allowed at or under a point per possession uh every game except for the michigan state game and that was um you know a little bit uh influenced by michigan state just having to to go in kansas not wanting to foul and, and giving up some easy baskets so um in essence they've allowed under a point per possession every game uh, against some really good teams so you know can that continue um i would lean towards no but I would also say that they have the talent and I think the, the smarts on their coaching staff to get some of their issues fixed as well. Yeah. The other thing though, that, that kind of begs the question, you know, if they're only allowing that much when they're like allowing so many open threes, you know, you have to think that Bill Self is going to get them to clamp down on that, to not allow so many open three point shots. What happens? Like how much better does this defense look than if they're able to keep up the same kind of pressure inside? Cause when they're giving up that many three point shots and the opponent is making that many of them, like it's, it's, crazy than what they're actually doing on the on the two pointers. I mean, you know, they're they're only allowing in in terms of of two point or the the defensive numbers and actually I think this is what what is honestly making the biggest difference for them. They're ranked number 16 in terms of the opponent's offensive rebounding percentage. So they're only allowing the uh the opponent to rebound 21.3% of their misses. So basically you know, four out of five shots that they're getting the rebound on, which completely limits second chance opportunities. Um, they're also not really sending opponents, opposing teams to the free throw line. Um, you know, only, it's only, let's see, free throw attempts, uh, divided by field goal attempts. I 
not sure what this number actually is on Ken Palm, but it's 27.5. That's good for 63rd in the nation. So not not quite as good, you know, as we're looking at for the offensive rebounding. But, in ter- but I mean, this, this is one of those main four factors. You know, they're really good at limiting second opportunities, which has to help with that, you know, defense per possession. And really, I think it's what's making up for the fact that they're allowing so many three-pointers. And, you know, opponents are shooting at a uh, 37.8% clip. Uh, in terms of their overall three point percentage, which is horrid. Like they're they're taking a ton of shots from three. They're making a bunch of shots from three, and and yet Kansas is still holding teams to a very very subpar offensive performance. So, I mean, I I honestly don't know what to make of this team at this point. Um, but let's let's go ahead and jump right into the Marquette game because I, I want to make sure we have time to get to both of these games. You know the. What what do you think was the bigger surprise from this game? The fact that Kansas got down double digits in the first half, or the fact that they went on a twenty-two to nothing run to start the second half? I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but, but yeah, I think it's there. I think it's definitely the the twenty-two to nothing run. Um, you had to expect that they would come out a little bit fired up in the second half after uh, that late run that Marquette went on, and the fact that they were getting all sorts of open shots and, and making a ton of them. I mean, you had to know that Bill Self was going to yell at them a little bit, but. Yeah, the 22 to nothing run. They outscored them 22 to six for the first 10 minutes of the second half, and at that point, it was um, you know really kind of over uh, at that point. Um, yeah, that was just a, a really impressive job by them, not just defensively putting the clamps on, but you know offensively, that was their kind of best 10 minute stretch as well. Um, and so just to to realize that yeah, they need to get stops, but also they need to come down and, and score every time uh, as well was a, a really good job by them. And and they did a you know Marquette's a, a pretty terrible defensive team, so maybe the defense should get a little bit more of the ink here. But I, I was impressed with the way that they were consistently able to to generate good looks and, and not let the fact that Marquette had made so many open threes against them. Um, you know, there's a tendency to to come down and try to make a, a ten point play every possession, so to speak, where you're you know taking all these long threes and all these wild shots, trying to get it all back at once. And they did a really good job, just kind of um, settling down and, and making sure that they were just able to to keep getting good looks and, and keep scoring and, and keep putting the pressure on them. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I think a big key to that run literally was just not panicking. You know, with with how hot. Uh, Marquette was in that first half. It seemed like they could barely miss anything at all. You knew that they weren't going to keep that up all game long. They were able to get it back within nine points at the half on that. I believe it was a banked in two from, from Legerald Vic. Um, I, I may be wrong on the actual play itself, but the fact that they were able to do that, you know, and get back into the game at that point to, to make it a single digit lead at the half. And then they just, you know, said, okay, you guys are going to have to keep this up in order to beat us. Um, you know, Marquette went really cold to start the second half. It wasn't all super good defense by Kansas. It was they started taking a lot of the same shots that they were before, and they just weren't falling. They took a lot of three-pointers that just didn't end up, you know, going. I mean, Marquette took 31 three-pointers. They only made 14 of them. I believe at one point in the first half, I, I may be, again, I may be wrong on the actual number here, but I believe at one point in the first half they were like 10 of 12 or something ridiculous like that. So Marquette was was really hot to build that huge lead, but obviously weren't going to be able to sustain it. Kansas didn't panic, and they just let their natural athleticism kind of take over at that point. And really, I think the only surprising thing about that 22 to nothing uh, run that they had to start the second half was that Marquette just couldn't make a bucket to save their lives at that point. Um, you know, I, I do. I was a little surprised that they got down that far, just given how 
you know, how much they had, um, well, supposedly had learned from those two prior games where they got down pretty early in, in the first half. I didn't think that they were going to go ahead and do that again. I, I still think this is a lot less about the mental toughness of this team or anything like that than it is. These guys are still getting used to each other. And I know that we've said that quite a lot. And it's kind of surprising, especially since there's so many transfers. But they have a lot of really talented guys who are used to being the guy. They have Udo Kazubuke, LeGerald Vick, you know, guys that were already on this team, already had established roles. They're trying to fit in a lot of these new transfers who, well, yeah, they've been around the team. They haven't been playing. They haven't been, you know, staking their their claim to certain spots or to certain roles on the team. And I think the thing that kind of threw the biggest wrench was just how hot of a start LeGerald Vick got out to. I don't think he was expected to be, like, even by the people on the team, a big cog of what this team needed to do at the beginning of the year. You know, and I mean, looking at the Ken Palm stats, um, Dedrick Lawson has been the MVP of the of three of their games. LeGerald Vick has been the MVP of the other two. Like, I don't think anybody expected him to be such an important part of the team so early, which is kind of just discombobulated a lot of the team. I thought Grimes was going to be that guy a lot sooner. And I honestly thought he was going to come out. And, and I, I mean, I hate to say it. It almost seems like LeGerald Vick has kind of stolen his thunder and he's not sure how to react to it. So uh, what are your, I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? Is there anything, one, anything that I just said that you disagree with, but also like, what do you think is causing these, these really slow starts for them? Well, I think the, the slow start thing, you know, I was doing a little bit of, I guess not research, but I kind of rewatched a couple of the games and stuff. And it really seems like their offense kind of has two modes. And, and one is when Azubuki is on the floor and one is when he isn't. And when he is on the floor, it just seems like their plan A, B, and C is to throw it into him in the post, which normally I think is fine. I mean, he's a, he's a really good post player, obviously. Um, a lot of the, the stat geeks like the threes and stuff, and I, I do too, um, as if you followed the Rock Talk Talk Twitter account, you will know that I enjoy a, a good three-pointer now and then. But <laughs> um, throwing it into a guy who led the nation in field goal percentage last year uh, certainly is not a problem either. Um, I think the issue comes from this year he's got, uh, for the most part, he's got Diedrich Lawson in there with him, and that's an extra body there and then an extra body in terms of the guy who's defending him. And so, whereas last year, um, he would have a little bit more room to operate uh, with those those four guys kind of more on the perimeter. Um, this year, it's it's a little bit easier for teams to send a quick double, and, and he's turning it over a little bit more, and he's really struggling passing out of the double team unless it's to the guy who's kind of right in front of him, um, which doesn't often get you much. So yeah, I think I think sorry to to jump in. No, you're quick, fine. But no, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that's been a big a big portion of it is that throwing it in, he has a chance to isolate his man on the block, and then. When someone comes to help, he can see them coming. He has time to kick it out to whoever's going to be open. Um, like it gives him a lot more time to work and a lot more room to work. And yeah, he just doesn't have that this year. I also think a part of that too is that I think that they're forcing it to him. There's, you know, he's had a lot of problems with foul trouble. He's a lot, had a lot of times where they, they may need to pull him off at the end of the game, you know, if they're trying to, to use free throws to salt away the game. And I almost think it almost feels like the, the entire team thinks, well, we've got to get as much production out of Yudoka in a short, period of time as we possibly can and so they they force it to him a lot a lot more than they probably should yeah and then with him um out of the lineup it it just seems like they have a little bit they're just kind of they don't really seem like they know what they're doing um with him not on the floor they don't really seem to have that focal point to to get the ball through and stuff and obviously i think that that should be Dieter lawson um but it just seems like it's it's taken them a while to kind of get to that point. And, you know, it's one of those things where they, when you got 
nine, ten guys in your rotation, sometimes it's going to take a while to figure out who your best guys are and figure out what everyone's best role is and, you know, whether you want Quentin Grimes to be a spot-up shooter or a guy who, you know, does a little bit more cutting or a little bit more ball handling and, you know, where Charlie Moore's minutes are going to come from and all that stuff. So I'm not um, – I guess I'm a little surprised that it's looked as bad as it has, but I'm not terribly surprised that it's taken them a while to get going. And it probably will take until, you know, maybe big 12 play for them to really figure things out. But um, I don't think that we'll be sitting here in February wondering what's wrong with the offense by, by any means. And then what, you know, one, one quick thing about Vic um, by all accounts, you know, it sounds like even beyond the insane, you know, three point shooting um, that he's doing right now, it sounds like he's been the the complete package in terms of, you know, being good in the locker room and, and being a leader. And, you know, he's devoting a, a lot more energy on the defensive end this year. Um, he's still getting lost off the ball sometimes, but it's, you know, not a case of, um, you know, him being absent-minded or, or him being lazy or anything. It's just kind of, um, you know, something that happens, so to speak, with with not really anything. Um, I mean, it's obviously his fault a little bit, but, but not to the standpoint where you're kind of, um, you know, worried about it continuing. Um, he's been really good on the ball defensively as well. Um, and actually, I uh, I probably shouldn't even um, mention this one, but I looked up his Ken Palm profile, and, and Ken Palm has the uh, like similarity score. So they'll take your, I think it, it's based on your height and weight, and then also your stats and stuff for that year. And um, his number one, playing. yeah, his number one similarity score is Kim English from the 2012 Missouri team, oh. and then down down the road a little bit is Marcus Denman from the 2012 Missouri team. So. Uh, probably something that KU fans don't want to hear, although both those guys had, you know, really good years. So if he turns out to have a, a year like one of those two, um, you know, unfortunately we'll probably have to say that, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, if I think it's pretty easy to argue that those are two of probably the best players that Mizzou's had in a really, really long time. And if a guy that was expected to be a, you know, a, a role player is developing into one of those type of players, um, and, and like end of the bench type of role player is, I think, how most people expected Vic to be this year. Right. If he's, yeah, he's I that kind of, yeah. Yeah, if he's gonna give that, that kind of con, contribution, I think you'll take that every single time. So. Alright, so any other thoughts on, on, on the Marquette game? Uh, nope. Alright, so let's go ahead and jump ahead to the Tennessee game. First of all, well actually, in, bet- in between those two games, cause I did want to talk about this, the, the thing that everybody was going crazy over was the, you know, Duke versus Gonzaga game out, out in Maui. Um, Gonzaga got out to a huge elite on Duke and then, uh, Duke fought all the way back and actually tied it a couple times and before Gonzaga was able to put it away. Were you, were you surprised at all that people were immediately talking about, oh, well, Gonzaga's gonna need to jump up to number one now because of how they, they beat down Duke for so long? No, not really. I think that it's, you know, one of those things where if you beat number one and you're number three, there's a lot of expectations that you might hop over number two, which is fine. I, I'll be honest with you. I haven't looked at or, or cared about a poll in quite a long time. You know, they obviously don't matter for NCAA tournament seeding purposes, and that's really the only thing that matters. I suppose you could argue that, you know, if you're a, a team like Buffalo, breaking into the top 25 is a big deal, not just for notoriety purpose but for recruiting and and stuff like that but for a school like Kansas you know they have their their sights set on something else um later in the year so right no I I was important where you are in the top five than it is to actually just be in the top 25 right exactly um I I did see that uh, and I haven't really been online much today but I did see that I think Jesse Newell actually had Duke ranked 
first. Um, and, and KU and Gonzaga had the same number of uh, number one votes. So it's it's his fault, I think, that we're uh, number two instead of number one. So yeah, so actually, I was I was diving into the poll. Uh, Gonzaga had one more first place vote than Kansas. Um, Gonzaga had thirty two. Kansas had thirty one. Okay. Duke Duke got one. I'm surprised to hear that it was Jesse that that had it. Uh, and then, and then Virginia got one. Okay. Which I was a little surprised to hear that Virginia got one too, but I, I think there was actually people voting them number one prior to Duke jumping up. So maybe that's not quite that, that surprising, but Kansas was behind Gonzaga by only six points. Um, which is a little bit more than just that, that, that difference in the number ones. But, you know, it's still basically as close as it can possibly get. I, I do agree with you that polls don't really matter at this point. Um, it's definitely something that's fun to argue about at times. But it can be maddening if you really put too much, too much into it. Um, you know, I just I thought it was funny all the talk about how oh well you know Duke completely destroyed Kentucky. There's questions about how good Kentucky actually is this year. Like they're probably still going to be a top 15 team, but I don't think any they're going to be nearly as good as people thought they were. Um, at least in the beginning part of the year, um, you know, so that vaulted Duke up to the top. And then when Gonzaga finally showed that wait a minute maybe Duke isn't really that you know phenomenal of a team. They just have a really, really good player in Zion Williamson. Um, you know, all of a sudden now Gonzaga is one of those, is like the hottest name out there. And, oh, it's finally time for Gonzaga to be number one. Kansas, I think, I think Bill Self actually doesn't mind not being number one at this point. He'd rather have them at number two so he can use that as motivation for these guys. And I don't think anybody on the Kansas team really thinks that they definitely deserve to be number one, um, mainly because I think everybody recognizes they have not been playing as well as they possibly could have been. Matt Norlander over on, on CBS Sports, he had an article that he put up that was actually saying, you know, if if Kansas is this good now, you know, they're top five in offense and defense, imagine how good they're going to be when everybody is actually clicking the way that they're supposed to. You know, he went through talking about Yudoka always being in foul trouble, you know, um, Grimes not really getting going, like listing all of the problems that we've already talked about multiple times. You know, and, and saying, look, when these guys start clicking and doing what they're supposed to be doing, how scary is that team going to be? Like, even even Gonzaga, when they get back to full strength, how, how are they going to compete with that? And I think that's kind of what we're lo- all looking towards. But the question is, obviously, are they ever going to get to that comfort level, um, either before the tournament or even in the tournament, to be able to play to that potential? Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and jump actually over to the Tennessee game now. Was this game like everything you thought it was going to be? Was there anything that particularly frustrated you in this game? It was a little um, kind of stop and start because of all the whistles. Uh, I didn't really like that on either side. I mean, I think that the – I can't remember if it was Grant Williams for Tennessee, their best player. I can't remember if it was his fourth or his fifth foul, but it was, uh, you know, really ticky-tack foul. And I, obviously you're not really looking for – those on the other team as much as you are for guys on your own team. So I, you know, the two that as had his fourth and his fifth were kind of rough or his third and his fourth. It might've been, I can't remember, but there were a couple of really rough ones on him. And it was just one of those things where you knew that they were going to be banging down low just because of Williams and, and because of, uh, you know, Diedrich and, and because of Azubuki and, um, you know, Kyle Alexander did a really good job uh, inside as well. And so did Admiral uh, Schofield for Tennessee. So with with all those, you know, with all that talent inside and with all those big bodies inside, you had to imagine that there was going to be some some stuff going on back and forth down low. And it's kind of surprising that they called so many fouls. I think it kind of took away from the enjoyment of the game um, on both ends. But other than that, I think it, it kind of was what I expected, a, a pretty low scoring 
affair. You know, can obviously, you know, raw point totals were pretty high because of the overtime, but Kansas scored only uh, 1.05 points per possession, and Tennessee was at 0.98, which is sort of kind of what I expected um, for both teams, just given the, the makeup of both teams and, and how good Tennessee is defensively and the fact that they don't have a ton of outside shooting. Um, right. So, you know, that kind of um, didn't surprise me. The one thing I, I will say, just to kind of piggyback on your point earlier about improvement, and, and this is to take nothing away from Tennessee because they're, you know, they're really good and they might, in terms of raw talent, be the best team that Kansas sees um, until like the Elite Eight if they make it that far. So they're really good, but they're also, you know, starting uh, two juniors or two seniors and three juniors and then bring a junior off the bench as their sixth man, whereas, you know, Kansas is starting two freshmen and, having a bunch of uh, transfers and, and new guys who kind of need to blend together um, in their lineup and coming off the bench. So uh, in terms of ceiling, you know, Tennessee is, I think, pretty close to their ceiling, which is, like I said, very, very good. Um, whereas Kansas, I think, has a, a ton of room uh, to grow. So the fact that they were able to, you know, the fact that they won didn't surprise me. It's the fact that they won while clearly, you know, not playing very well and, and having, you know, multiple guys, uh, including, you know, a couple of really important ones in Yudoka Azabuki and Quentin Grimes, not play well at all. Um, the fact that they were able to do that and still won uh, was pretty surprising and, and really impressive to me. Yeah, I was a little shocked by just how bad things were going at a time. I actually, I tweeted out after he got, after Yudoka got his fourth, you know, it was like two, two crap calls in the second half, and this one looked like it's going to get out of hand pretty quick because, Tennessee has started to go on a little bit of a run. I think at that point they were up by like six or seven. Um, you know, but that, that, that fifth foul that he got was definitely a foul. He came and he knocked a guy down, like trying to go for the rebound. He just flattened him. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, that third and that fourth, those were definitely pretty questionable. Not going to complain about it too much though, just because, you know, there was a lot of questionable whistles, I think, in that game. A lot of it, I think, has to do with the new NCAA. We, and, and we see this every year. They have an emphasis on something in particular. They call it a ton in the non-conference, and then everybody kind of settles in, and they maybe change a little bit, but not nearly as much as you would think like it would take to stop calling, and, the, and then the refs just stop calling the the fouls you know, that are supposed to be the point of emphasis going into conference play. So um, kind of the nature of the beast, just the, you know they want to emphasize something for so long, and it only lasts for a couple months, and then they go back to what they were doing before. Um, so I, I, you know, unfortunately, it's just something that we kind of have to live with early. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with your point that Tennessee, I think, is, is is pretty close. Like they are probably one of the the teams in the top fifteen that's as close to the finished product as they're going to be at this point. Um, you know, they have a lot of guys that are playing at a really high level. They have the ability to beat anybody on any on any particular given night. You know, but they also probably are not going to you know dip down and have really bad nights from any of those guys because of how experienced they are. And so you get a team like Kansas, which has a huge variance in their performance just because, you know, you have so many moving parts that are trying to work together. You have so many brand new guys, all of that. If they have an off night, their their worst is going to be worse than a team like Tennessee, but their best is also going to be better than a, a team like Tennessee as well. Tennessee is going to be a good team. I would not be surprised to see them in the Elite Eight or anything like that, um, maybe potentially making a run to the Final Four. But, you know, if, if every team in the tournament is playing at their absolute best, Tennessee is not going to win the national championship. Obviously, that doesn't always happen, but like, Tennessee is very talented. They're just not quite there in terms of the, the best that they could possibly play to 
head be head and shoulders above everybody else. So, but again, you're right. They are a very, very good team. I'm very impressed with, with Grant Williams and the way that he played. Admiral Schofield was really kind of making me upset quite a few times just with how, how open he was able to get on a lot of his shots. He, he cooled off in the second half, just like we saw against Marquette. Um, you know, that their, their three point shooting kind of tailed off and Kansas was able to pull out the win. I was really, really surprised that it even had to go to overtime. Um, but obviously, you know, once they got to overtime, Kansas just kind of pulled away because everybody was exhausted at that point. And Kansas has a really, really deep bench. So speaking of the bench, you know, I think the two unlikely heroes of that game against Tennessee would have been Charlie Moore and KJ Lawson. Um, was there one of you, one of those guys that surprised you more and which one do you think is going to be able to reprise that role more often in the, uh, the, the rest of the season? That's a good question. I think that they're probably going to need Charlie Moore a little bit more, um, no pun intended, just because uh, without, you know, Devin Dotson, he's kind of the only other point guard. Now they obviously have, you know, guys like Quentin Grimes and, and even like a Dieter Klassen who can handle kind of those similar types of functions once they actually get the ball into their offense and stuff. So maybe not as big of a deal, but I think that he's going to be called upon a little bit more uh, than KJ um, KJ had a, a really nice game as well, though. I think, uh, the fact that he, you know, missed his three is a little disappointing and, and he had a couple of quick fouls when he came in, which is a little disappointing. Although it was one of those things where when we're in February, I don't think that some of that stuff gets called. So I, I hope he doesn't really change his style of play. Um, defensively, I thought he did a really good job and I think probably, um, hopefully anyway, earned himself a, a few more minutes. Um, cause I really like the way that he defends and I think he offers a, a little bit more of a, a scoring punch than Marcus Garrett does. Um, if nothing else, you have to kind of respect his shot a little bit more than Marcus Garrett's. I don't think he's going to supplant him in the lineup by any means, but I think it would be nice to, um, you know, have him out there and, and playing some more minutes. And I think that he can, you know, he's, he's a lot better off the ball than Garrett as well, uh, which is something that they're going to have to focus on. Um, going forward this year. So I guess the this is a long way of saying that I, I wasn't, you know, I don't know that I was more impressed or, or less impressed or more surprised um, with either of them. I thought they both came in and, and did a pretty good job. And I think that, um, I guess I will say that I think Charlie Moore's box score numbers kind of um, don't do him a, a service because he had to take a couple of really tough shots. And, um, you know, there was that one shot specifically where he was able to draw two defenders over and kind of his way of passing the ball back to Dietrich Lawson was throwing it high off the glass. And if he makes it, he makes it. And if he misses it, uh, you know, Lawson's right there for a putback. So kind of stuff like that where um, it's almost like the the early Tyshawn Taylor years where he would he would get into the lane and, and get to the basket and kind of do that same thing. And it, it made people think that he wasn't very good. But for the most part, you know, when you're able to draw multiple guys over like that and you have a um, what's essentially a, an open pass to someone, um, that's always a good thing. Yeah, definitely. So two more guys that I want to talk about real quick, and you can take them in any order. Um, Devin Dotson was really, really impressive, I think, in, in both of those games with the way he was driving. And then Marcus Garrett, he didn't play the second game because of concussion-like symptoms. But I do want to get your thoughts on Marcus Garrett in that first game. Every time I noticed him, it seemed to be that he was having some sort of defensive lapse. He was pull, you know, pulling off of his guy, leaving an open shooter. And this was a lot during the streak where, you know, uh, he was just like where, where Marquette was just really, really cold. And so it looked to me like he was pulling off of a guy and, and, you know, the other team just was not able to take advantage of that. Um, maybe I'm, I'm misremembering how it actually happened, but I, I want to get your thoughts on, on, on both of those guys. No, I, I think you're right. You know, he did a lot of stuff in that first game and he's kind of done it. He did it last year as well and, and kind of did it this year too, where 
he does just, you know, he'll have a choice between two guys and he'll, you know, kind of pick the wrong one frequently. When you get him locked onto a guy, uh, one-on-one defense, uh, he does a really good job. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where I remarked, um, I can't remember if it was in our game thread on the site, um, but Bill Self had him on Marcus Howard, who's uh, Marquette's, you know, sharpshooter, and he just let him guard Marcus Howard, and he stuck with him and, and did a lot of face guarding, and that was, a, I think, a really inspired choice because he was able to not only bother him with his size. I mean, he's he's 6'5 and, and long and lanky as opposed to Marcus Howard, who I think is listed under 6 feet, but he also, you know, there there's uh, kind of an explicit instruction not to help off the ball when you got a guy as good as he is, and that really kind of maximizes his talents while uh, minimizing his downside, and I think that um, – not to skip ahead too far here, but I think we might run into that situation again here when, when we play Wofford. Um, Wofford's Fletcher McGee is, uh, I made a, a, a remark in the Marquette preview that Marcus Howard's probably the best shooter in the country. And I, I apologize to Mr. McGee. I'm, I'm sure he's listening. Um, he's actually the best shooter in the country. I, I totally forgot all about him, but um, he's a, a 43% career three-point shooter on almost 800 attempts. And he's, oh, wow. he's probably, yeah, he's probably going to get to a thousand career attempts by the time the season is over. So, um, and he's, you know, talk about being able to shoot it off the dribble and off the catch and stuff. I mean, he's just a, he's just an insane shooter. So uh, that's going to be something to definitely to watch um, when Kansas plays Wofford here um, in a couple, uh, next week or the week after. I think next it's the week, week after. Yeah, it's it's on the, on December 4th. So, there you so go. it's not, yeah, it's not uh, like this Saturday, this Saturday they play Stanford and they play Wofford the next Tuesday after that. So, yeah. so okay. a week from a week from tomorrow we're, we're, we're recording this on Monday night. So, um, so just kind of a couple thoughts about Marcus Garrett before we jump over to Devon Dawson then, um, you know, I, I, I do agree with you. If he is just on one man, he does a really, really good job. Um, but he does not, he seems completely lost in like a zone type of offense, or if he's trying to switch guys, he doesn't necessarily switch as quickly as he probably should. If he has to think about more than one guy, he will often leave a, th- you know, a guy out of the perimeter open so that he can try to help over help in the, in the paint. Um, that led to, I mean, and, and a lot of guys were doing it in the first half. And Marquette was making them pay by actually making their shots. But that continued in the second half. Like after we made comments about, you know, how how wide open we were leaving them and allowing them to take three-point shots, it was still happening in the second half. And I think Marcus Garrett had the most of them. Um, it, just because, again, the beginning of that, of that second half, they were still switching off guys. They were still kind of doing everything that they were doing in the first half. And finally, when Marquette started to make shots again in the second half, that's when they finally switched Garrett to just straight up guarding Howard. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a lot of people talk about how he's such a great defender. I think he's a he's a limited defender. He's a very one-dimensional defender. He's really good at getting up in a guy's face and sticking with him. I don't think he's necessarily as good in a team defense type of concept. And he's contributing basically nothing on the offense. I, I'm honestly surprised that he's getting as, as many minutes as he is right now just because I don't think he brings enough versatility to this team. He's, I think he, he's the kind of guy I think that you have in like eighth or ninth in your rotation. You bring him in in a game when you need a defensive specialist to really shut down an opposing shooter. Um, They've been using him for a lot more. And I don't know if it's just because he's, you know, he's been here and he played on last year's team um, or if they're still just trying things out, trying to get him to kind of get back to where he was last year, because last year he, I, I thought he was a much more complete player. He was, he still wasn't a really good shooter, but he was shooting well enough that you could, you know, he wasn't a liability on offense and he was, 
more of an all-around defensive type of guy. I don't know if he's just regressing or if it's just a really small sample size. And so, you know, we haven't really had an opportunity to see him at that full strength. Yeah, and then I guess um, one other thing, too, about his offense, I mean, he took 13 shots against Marquette, which is something that I think just needs to needs to stop. I mean, he's not – <laughs> Yeah, he, he's he's definitely pressing a little bit, which is, I think, understandable. Um, I guess I will say, you know, some of those shots where he, he gets into the lane and, and misses them, um, I'm kind of fine with. Um, if he's going to miss really up, I don't think he's going to miss shots up close like that um, terribly often. So I, I guess I'm fine with him continuing that. It's just the, the threes and and uh, kind of the longer twos. I, and, I mean, I guess, heck, even the threes sometimes are fine because you, you have to show that you're willing to take them in order to, you know, not get completely left alone. But it's just he's got to figure something out uh, to make the ball go in the basket. Um, and I, you know, if I had any good answers for him right now, I think Bill Self and I would be switching places. So uh, I certainly don't know what to do. But um, just quickly about Devin Dotson, man, um, I was – way wrong about him and obviously you know there's only so much you can do predicting how a, a player is going to be when you've never seen him play and you're only oh, basing course. it when you're only basing it enough you know reading about him and stuff like that but for the record um, I was just as wrong about him like I thought Charlie Moore was going to be our starting point guard beginning of the year and Dotson has just completely taken off so yeah just from from kind of reading about him and stuff it just seemed like you know he'd be fine but you know whether or not he'd be really good was kind of up up in the air but man has he been great um you do wish the turnover numbers would come down a little bit and the assist numbers would come up a little bit. Um, but I think that's going to, I think that's going to come in time um, with him getting older and him getting, or with him getting more experience and with him getting more comfortable uh, in the offense. And, and, you know, some of those turnovers that he had, like in the Michigan state game, I mean, those were just kind of getting a little out of control in the open floor and, and turning it over. It's not like he's, um, you know, misplacing passes in the half court and stuff like that. Um, but just his, his work at the rim, I, I saw that he, second to Azubuki on the team in terms of field goal percentage uh, at the rim, according to hoop math, which is, you know, for a guy who's, he's listed at six, two, but there's no way he's six, two. I don't think, I mean, he seems like he's maybe six feet flat at the most. Um, yeah. So for him to be able to score like he does uh, at the rim is incredible. Um, you know, he's a, a pretty good shooter as well. Um, even just, you know, beyond his percentages. I mean, it looks like he's got good form and stuff. Uh, he could, he could go for maybe, a little bit quicker release, but you'd take five out of 10 from three any day, obviously. Uh, and then defensively, you know, he, he gets lost off the ball, just like everyone on the team does. But um, on the ball, he's a really, really good uh, perimeter defender already, um, which is really impressive for a freshman. So um, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly impressed with him. I hope he kind of slows down a little bit here so that Kansas can have him on the team next year and he doesn't leave for the NBA, but he's just been, uh, he's just been a revelation, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's so he's shooting, he's shooting fifty six percent from the two point from from two point range, you know, and and like you said, he's shooting five of ten from three point range. I mean, he's not doing a lot in terms of, you know, he's he's not a high volume shooter. It doesn't seem like, um, he, but he's picking really good spots and getting good drives into the lane. Um, I, I mean, I think I think that's been the most impressive thing is for a freshman, he has really really good vision as a point guard. Um, you know, he's he's facilitating a lot of of really good shots. He's picking his spots when he wants to drive to open up guys or when he wants to drive to actually go finish it. Um, he, I think he's just, he's got a lot higher of a basketball IQ than I assumed he was going to have at this point. Um, he really seems to, to be comfortable out there on the floor. 
much more to a degree than I thought he was he was going to get at any point in, in, in his first year. So I'm definitely really impressed with him. And, and, and I mean, I, I agree with you. If he continues like this, there's a good shot he decides to go after this year. Um, just because there's that possibility there, you know, that he could, he could put up the kind of numbers um, that you would need to, you know, be a second round pick if he continues like this. I mean, he's, he's been that, that good. So, all right. Any, any other final thoughts about these games? Uh, nope. All right. So I, I think we've got just a couple minutes here. Did you want to go ahead and try to preview the Stanford game real quick? Or do we want to go ahead and save that for the, uh, for the end of the week? Yeah, I think we can probably save it. I'm going to, I'm going to get to the, uh, the cricket, well, the, the cricket minute, which isn't going to be about cricket. There we go. Um, I just like the name so much that we have to keep it. Cricket. Um, so the Grey Cup, the championship of the Canadian Football League, uh, was actually last night, uh, featuring the Calgary Stampeders versus the Ottawa Red Blacks, which is the worst name, uh, ever for a team, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's actually the colors as far as I can tell. Um, it's not like an act, you know, a red black isn't a thing. Um, but anyway, so this was Calgary's uh, third straight year in the Grey Cup, um, the third straight year being fairly heavily favored. Uh, they lost two years ago to Ottawa, uh, lost last year to uh, Toronto, and I believe Toronto was under 500 even after the game, which is kind of a, a quirk of the CFL because there's only uh, nine teams. There, you know, some pretty bad teams get in the playoffs, and then you get hot and then you can win the thing. So yeah, uh, that was, yeah, that was uh, a little, a little wild, but so they had, they had, you know, more or less choked in the last two. Um, and then uh, this year they actually won uh, 27 to 16. Um, it was in Ottawa on kind of a frozen field. I guess I don't really know why they, they don't hold it solely in the two places with indoor stadiums, which are Toronto and, and BC. But I guess the, the easy answer there is uh, neither of those places really support the CFL like the, the Prairie provinces do. Um, but anyway, so they, they won. It was never, um, never really in doubt. Um, and just a, a heck of a run uh, for Calgary, whose coach, by the way, Dave Dickinson um, was a guy who I thought that if, you know, Kansas missed on a couple of guys that they were hiring, um, maybe should have been a guy that they, uh, took a look at um, as a coach. I just think that he's uh, really, you know, maybe a good outside the box hire. I mean, he's got a 777 win percentage um, as head coach. He's won their division regular season uh, each of the three years he's been a coach. Uh, like I said, this is their third, you know, championship game appearance, and now he's won one. So, um, I mean, pretty impressive run by the franchise and, and by the coach, and probably someone who's going to get snapped up by maybe a, an NFL team or, or maybe a college team. Um, he went to Montana and Montana is probably going to be in the running for uh, a coach here within the next uh, couple of years. So um, one, one final thing um, they're adding a team next year uh, in the CFL. Um, they they're in Halifax, which is in Nova Scotia out in the, out in the Maritimes. They're going to be called the Atlantic schooners, which is the greatest uh, team name of all time. That's awesome. Um, yeah, they were originally founded actually back in 1982, and there was some reason where I, I don't know if they couldn't get a stadium or they couldn't get um, couldn't get funding for something or another, and they never actually played. Um, but yeah, they're <laughs> the Atlantic Schooners, which is uh, probably the greatest 
uh, team name ever. I'm going to probably have to get a hat, depending on how their logo is. All right. Well, Fetch, thanks again for joining me. Um, we will go ahead and leave it there. We'll try to have another another episode where we go ahead and preview the Stanford game later this week. Otherwise, we'll just go ahead and jump back on and uh, and actually talk about the recap from it. So, but Fetch, thanks thanks again for joining me tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine this will be the more listened to half uh, of this podcast uh, with your other guest, who I'm told is not famous or uh, oh, of course cool. Not. No, at no, all. No, so, no. I, okay. I, I will make sure that she knows that you said that too, okay? Okay, good. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks. And that'll do it for tonight's episode. Thank you to everybody for tuning in to listen. Just a quick uh, preview of what's coming up in the next few days here for Kansas Athletics. Um, the next action we have would be on Thursday. The women's basketball team is heading down to Baton Rouge uh, to face LSU. Uh, that'll be at, at 6 p.m. on the SEC Network. Uh, you guys can go ahead and catch that. The undefeated Kansas Jayhawks will be taking on, I think, probably their their real first test here. It's a road game against um, against LSU. So uh, then after that, we've got swimming and diving. Uh, the USA Winter Nationals also start on Thursday, so we've got a few days of that. Saturday, December first, obviously the men's basketball team travels uh, to, I'm sorry, stays at home in Allen Fieldhouse playing Stanford. Uh, that's at 4.30 on ESPN. We are looking at trying to have a another episode before that so we can go ahead and preview that for you guys. But if not, um, you know, we will we will definitely have a recap of that game. And then after that, the next action that we have would be uh, men's basketball hosting Wofford again here at, at home. Wofford actually has some uh, pretty big wins so far. Uh, so another another one of those teams that... I think is kind of surprising to some people that we'll round out a really tough schedule for for the Jayhawks this year. So, um, But that's what we have to look forward to coming up. Um, again, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Please do find us on iTunes, rate, subscribe, give, leave us a review. Five stars would be great. Um, everything that you guys do there really does help to improve the visibility of the podcast, allows us to, to get out to more people. So. Um, if you want to contact us, you can email us at rockchalkpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we are on Twitter at rockchalkpod. Uh, you know, any comments, suggestions, uh, people you want to try to interview, any of that stuff, feel free to, to, to go ahead and hit us up. I do like to try to, again, bring as much of the content you guys want to listen to as possible to us. So, um, once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you next time on the Rock Chalk Podcast. Podcast Network.